This is Sam Saxon. Along with Professor Joff Deroot. And you're listening to Tales Unveiled. Where we travel across Oklahoma for ghost stories. As well as urban legends and local history. After a reschedule due to the ice storm, I met up with the professor at the 45th Infantry Division Museum in Oklahoma City. While the professor has visited the museum several times, it was my first. I took in the sights of the numerous military weapons and vehicles on display outside, which range from artillery cannons to tanks and aircraft. As I snapped a few photos, the professor informed me that he had to leave by 3pm to teach a class and that after the interview he had something he wanted to show me. I told the professor to lead the way, where inside we found the curator, Michael Gonzalez, saying goodbye to his family who had popped in for a visit. Michael's office was a little bit cramped for the three of us and my equipment, and so I asked if there was another place we could set up. He took us upstairs to the private library where there was a large table for us to utilize. Along the way, he did mention that he had a ghost story about those stairs. With everything ready, I began the interview by asking Michael what visitors can expect when they come to visit. Well, we are the nation's largest state-operated military history museum. We have 27,000 square feet of exhibit area inside the museum, composing uh, 10 uh, galleries. We have a 15-acre park surrounding the museum with over 70 military vehicles, uh, armored vehicles, artillery, aircraft, and ancillary equipment. So there's quite a lot to see here. So what would you say would probably be some of the biggest draws for people to come visit? Well, we have some very unique uh, collections in the museum. Um, Primary among them would be uh, the Bill Malden Art Collection. We are in possession of over 200 of Bill Malden's original Willie and Joe cartoons as he drew them in the field during the Second World War, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize. We have the largest collection of items once the personal property of Adolf Hitler on public display anywhere in the world. Now there are larger collections, but they're in private hands, and so not on public exhibition. Here you will also see the third largest collection of historic U.S. military firearms in the nation. Wow, that is quite the collection. Is there anything that you're particularly proud of that was quite maybe difficult or had an interesting story on a taming? Um, Well, our our, um, acquisitions have come to us through predominantly through donations. Uh, So we haven't gone out seeking anything. Uh, But we have some extremely uh, interesting donations, uh, not the least of which would be the Whitworth Sharpshooter's Rifle of the Civil War period. The uh, Confederacy purchased 150 of these rifles from Great Britain at a cost of uh, $500 a piece in gold. So they they really thought these weapons were going to be a game changer. At the end of the Civil War, the federal government recorded the destruction of, of all but 145 of those weapons. Uh, we know, or have known, since the Civil War where four of them went. Uh, one is in, today is in the Museum of the Confederacy, one is in the West Point Museum collection, and one is in the Smithsonian, one is in private hands. Well, the fifth one was an enigma. Nobody quite knew where it went until 1988 when a, uh, a veteran of the, uh, of the division from World War II and Korea came through during a reunion, saw 
the uh, Civil War collection and advised me that his family was in possession of an old Civil War rifle, maybe we'd like to have it. Well, it turned out to be the long-lost Confederate Whitworth Sharpshooter's rifle. And of the five surviving Confederate rifles, ours is the only one that was not surrendered to the federal government at the end of the war. So we refer to it as the gun that never surrendered. That's quite the nickname for a weapon. <laughs> uh, with all the weapons here, I mean, you got some tanks and artillery rifles. What would you probably say is probably the most dangerous thing you got here? Um, the most dangerous thing right now would be all the limbs dangling from the trees. But uh, um, gosh, you know, the the lethality, I guess, of the, the most lethal weapon that or what was once a weapon that's in the collection uh, would be the eight inch howitzers. We have two. Uh, one is uh, was intended to be towed. One was actually intended to be a coastal artillery piece. It's huge. Uh, but it can be towed, and it's sitting right up here north of the building. Um, that 8-inch shell is devastating. And artillery, historically, is the big killer on the battlefield. Is there anything else you want to share about the museum? Fun facts that things people may not realize that you would like them to know? Well, when you walk in the front door, uh, what you're going to uh, experience is the martial history of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we'll begin with the year 1541 and the expedition of the Spanish conquistador Coronado to what we now call Oklahoma, and you'll advance forward in time. Um, you will be immersed in uh, the, the history of the Oklahoma Guard in, from its early beginnings uh, through uh, its current operations. Uh, we hit heavy on uh, the 45th Division's involvement in the Second World War, 411 days of uh, combat during World War II, one of the most battle-hardened divisions uh, in the United States Army during that period. Also the Korean War, uh, 45th Infantry Division was one of only two National Guard divisions to be mobilized to see combat in Korea. The other was the uh, 40th out of California. Uh, then you'll be able to go on and see uh, uh, items that have been brought back by Thunderbirds who served in uh, Iraq uh, and in Afghanistan. Uh, throughout the museum, uh, there are some uh, exceedingly rare and unusual artifacts. Right now, we have an exhibit up on uh, we call uh, curiosities from the collection, where in which we take uh, artifacts that generally aren't going to see exhibit in the museum because they don't really fit the storyline and we've got them out on exhibit now and there's some real oddities in that collection mm, uh, uh, i think we'll definitely have to check that out after our interview professor i believe you have some questions i was curious about the building what has this always been a museum no uh, this is a 1936 wpa armory um the WPA in Oklahoma was administered by a former division commander of the 45th Division, General Key, and he was painfully aware that the National Guard did not have any armories within which to drill. So being the guy in charge of the WPA, they built a lot of armories and this was one of them. However, this is the only one with this particular architecture because this building was originally intended to be the State Officers Club. Well, that little tiny bit of information leaked out in the newspapers during the height of the Great Depression, and taxpayers became a little incensed. Uh, so uh, they rushed down through a hasty protective arms vault the side of the building, and it opened uh, in the fall of 1936 as headquarters and headquarters company of the 45th Infantry Division. 
Um, and it remained as such until World War II. Division goes overseas and the State Highway Patrol moved into the building. Uh, when they come back from World War II, they again occupy this building. Five years later, they call up again for Korea. They leave again. Once they get back, a new building is built to hold the division headquarters. So the building set empty for quite some time. Then they opened up the state OCS in here. And that was actually its last official function for the guard uh, in a military capacity. And in uh, the early 1970s, it was turned over to the 45th Infantry Division Association. And those uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, took the bull by the horns and got the museum up and running. Well, so much activity. Is there any uh, latent energy from that? Oh my gosh, yes. There is no staff member or volunteer in this museum who's been here for any length of time that hasn't had some encounter with something inexplicable. Uh, wow. My very first uh, encounter was only weeks uh, after I'd been employed here. This was back in 1987. I was working late because I had a lot of reading to do to catch up on the, the regulations, uh, both state and federal, pertaining to the operation of this building. And um, so it was late. A friend of mine called. We're talking on the phone. He had to set his phone down and walk away. So while I'm waiting for him to come back on, I hear footsteps coming up the hallway. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we locked somebody in the little theater down there who maybe fell asleep. And now he's going to walk down here and ask to be let out. Well, with the very next footstep that I anticipated I would see the fellow step into the, into the office area, that footstep never came. Then my friend gets back on the phone. We chat for a while. I hang up. I go back to reading. And then very distinctly, I hear somebody walking up the wooden stairs to get up here. Well, I jumped up and I ran up the stairs and I checked every nook and cranny in this upstairs area and there was nobody here. I went back down to my office and I could hear the footsteps move from the top of the staircase to a point immediately above my head. That's when I decided to go home. Very interesting. What other stories have you heard? My personal experiences, uh, one of the most profound, uh, I was, was locking up one evening and I turned the lights off in the room I was in, walking towards the next illuminated room, and I walked into what in my mind's eye was a, a bubble of absolutely arctic air. I, I, I just don't have, unless you've spent a winter in Germany, you just don't know how cold this air was. So I took a step back, and I was out of it. So I thought, well, I'm gonna stick my hand forward and see if I, I can feel this. And as my hand began to move over my right shoulder, behind me and above me, just as clearly as you hear my voice now, I heard, ah. Well, I think I left the building with all the remaining lights on. Um, eventually, I... Well, there were other things. I found, like, my desk chair on top of my desk. I would find my, my pens and pencils laid out on top of my desk in geometric patterns. I find uh, chairs in the gallery stacked one upon the other. And the alarm company said there was nobody in the building after hours. Um, I have 
come to the realization or come to the belief that there's no real malevolence, or if none has been shown me, it's more like we just want you to know we're here. And I've reached a degree of acceptance of that, as much of acceptance of that sort of thing as I think anybody can can come to. Um, my most recent experience, uh, I had a uh, intern here who worked upstairs on the other side of the building, and he had a nasty habit of leaving at the end of the day and leaving the lights on up there. So I would always open the door and look up the stairwell to see if the lights were on. Well, I opened the door, looked at the stairwell, the lights were off, but just as I looked up from the left corner of the top of the stairwell, it was like somebody peeked and looked down at me, and then their head moved back up. Of course, they were in the shadows. Um, the face appeared to be gray. The, 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 those things that constitute a face, eye sockets, shadow under the nose, under the lip, were a little darker very clear, very distinct movement. So I turned the lights on and I went up there, checked everything. I was the only one up there. Now, over the years, because of this, I, I contacted paranormal investigators. And like I, I told you earlier, I've had in excess of 30 different groups come through this building. Um, and it had it not been for COVID, uh, since March, we'd have had uh, three other groups come through here that had been on the calendar. Um, but pretty much every one of those groups comes away with something. I have a stack of uh, DVDs downstairs, the EVPs that they've recorded. So we, we know there's something here. What kind of EVPs have they had? Well, um, some of the really clear ones... Um, they had set up these digital recorders uh, throughout the building, and what they would do, this group of three would walk from one recorder to the next and just ask questions. And um, at this, uh, this one, um, this young lady was asking, um, you know, were you in the Army, these kinds of questions. What rank were you? And she starts rattling off some ranks. And, of course, they didn't anticipate they were going to hear a response, that's the nature of EVPs. So the, you hear one gentleman say, well, let's go on to the next. And they're talking as they're walking away from it. You can hear their voices getting smaller. And then all of a sudden you hear private. There was a group that was investigating in what we call the Supporting Forces Hall. And they picked up what was tantamount to an argument between apparently three different entities. Interesting. Yeah. Distinct voices? Yeah, very, very distinct. Um, in another location, the same group recorded this voice. This, this young woman asks, uh, is there anything we can do for you? And you hear the response, which sounded female, say, help me. And then you hear another voice. You couldn't really make out whether it was male or female, but you hear this voice respond, they can't help you, you're dead. So I'm getting goosebumps just sitting here talking. That's right. Around this. Very pragmatic response. Definitely you're on the creepy scale. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
the investigators, at least three of the teams, have agreed that uh, there are multiple entities in the building um, and that it, there are at least two female entities in the building. And in, in some of the recordings, you can definitely hear a voice that, uh, that sounds female. Hmm. Uh, tell us about the chapel. Well, the chapel is a very odd place and always has been. The, uh, any time of the day or night, uh, regardless of the amount of noise that may be going on in the building, and it doesn't really get very noisy in here. It's like walking into a library, really. But we play music, and there's sometimes children here. You go into the library, and it's quiet. It's very, very quiet in the chapel. Um, well, we had one investigative team come through here, and uh, they had been here before twice before and this time they brought with them a lady who introduced herself as a medium um, she left earlier than the rest of the group but she stopped by my office before she left and uh, she explained that she felt presences throughout the building which I thought was you know pretty generic I could have said the same thing was pretty unimpressed with that and then she said while I was sitting in the chapel I got a very clear feeling that we weren't alone, so I started asking some questions. Um, she said, you've got a spirit in there by the name of Anthony or Tony. Um, he served in Vietnam. She said, I, I don't understand it, but he apparently carried a pig, and he was known as the butcher. Well, some of that made sense to me, because the M60 machine gun it's a squad automatic weapon, uh, has the nickname of the pig. And if you are a M60 machine gunner, you are a butcher. So the next day, the gentleman who at that time was responsible for maintaining the Union Soldier Cemetery, which is diagonally across the street from the museum, came walking in and I asked him, do you have a Vietnam veteran buried over there by the name of uh, Tony or Anthony and he said yeah and he gave me the guy's full name and he said he served two tours in Vietnam M60 machine gunner got back he had a little trouble uh, melding back into the population I got him to join the guard eventually he got a full-time position he said as a matter of fact he's the guy that converted the room which is now your chapel into a chapel he did all the work in there really yes so that, uh, that was a real uh, amazing result of that particular investigation. Mm -hmm. A strong connection. Yeah. Are there any artifacts that seem to be particularly haunted? No, I, I wouldn't say so, though um, just about every paranormal team that's come through here has gotten various responses in the room we call the Dachau room and there are artifacts in there that were brought back by members of the 45th division from the concentration camp at Dachau which the 157th regiment liberated in uh, April of 1945 um, I don't think there's anything particular about that room other than it ha holds these artifacts these uh, some of these teams have res received responses to their questions in what is either German or Yiddish, because they're very similar in sound, and um, 
there was a very interesting episode where one team had taken a uh, an LED flashlight and altered the push button so that you could turn the thing off basically by blowing on it. And they set it in the middle of the floor and they asked questions and, you know, like one flash is yes and two flashes no. And they were basically holding a conversation. It was weird. They actually called me. I don't participate in the investigations. I stay in my office. And uh, they called me down there to witness this. And it was, it was, it was hair-raising. Um, have you heard anything about the vehicles outside? No, no, I haven't heard anything about the, the vehicles outside. Um, though we know that several of the vehicles out there are combat veterans. They were there, they did that, they saw that, and they came back. Um, some of them probably did not see combat, but we know the ones that did. But we've never had anybody... Of course, we've never had a paranormal team go out there and, and investigate around the vehicles. So, hmm. Might be a project for the Might future. Might be a project. What kind of experiments did the paranormal investigators do? There have been a number of very interesting experiments, um, not the least of which would be the uh, what I call the booze experiment. Uh, this one group set up a, a stool and with a camera focused on the top of it. On the stool, they set a, uh, a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Red, uh, a shot glass with uh, some Johnny Walker poured into it, and an open pack of Lucky Strike filterless cigarettes. Now, these are kind of World War II icons. Um, so they went through their whole investigation, which lasted about four hours. Uh, at the end of the four hours, of course, they had measured... Uh, the amount of, of alcohol that was in the shot glass at the beginning, and they measured it again at the end, and there was a measurable amount of the, the beverage missing from the shot glass. Um, and I asked the natural question, well, what about evaporation? Well, they did the research. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the amount of area exposed to, that the alcohol was exposed in in the top of the shot glass, the number of hours, the temperature in the room, and uh, they determined that there would indeed have been evaporation, but not a detectable amount, whereas they had recorded a, uh, a measurable amount of the alcohol missing. Um, there was a group that came through, and they had these spheres, which projected uh, green laser dots on the wall in the Sport Forces Hall, just covered ceilings, walls, floors, everything with green dots. Uh, the idea was that if anything got between the source, uh, one of these spheres, and a wall or an artifact, it was going to block out uh, those green dots. So they turned these things on. They put a camera in each corner of the room, and then we closed the door, and nobody went back in there. Uh, when it was over and they reviewed their, their film footage, uh, they discovered that um, at one point a shadow started at the southwest corner of the room uh, filling up the entire south wall and as it moved towards the east the top of the shadow got smaller and smaller until finally the whole thing just faded away um, and nobody had gone back in there so that's that was a real hair raiser too when I saw the, the film footage of that um, but the, the EVPs, I guess, have been the, the, the biggest 
exposure of, of what's hmm. going on. What are some of the most memorable EVPs? Oh, um, I have an investigator that pops in here and he puts these on his Facebook site or he, or his blog. I'm not sure which now. But um, he comes during the middle of the day, during a work week, when there'll be pe- people in the museum walking around. And he's got this um, uh, little folding table he sets up and he conducts EVP sessions. And um, so when he got when he gets done and he presents them, what he what he does is uh, the response, which he hears more clearly listening to the actual recording than somebody listening to a recording of the recording. He puts the he transcribes uh, what is said to the right on his on his uh, on his blog there, and um, so he's. He goes throughout the museum, sets up, asks a few questions, and leaves. Well, when he was in the chapel, again, the chapel, uh, he asked some questions, got some very clear, distinct response. Did you serve in Vietnam? Yes. Um, So when he's all done, he's getting ready to leave. He says, by the way, Mr. Gonzalez is in his office right now. Is there anything you'd like to say to him? And, of course, when I watched this, I kind of held my breath. And then uh, the answer came back quite distinctly. You didn't need his transcription. You hear the word, thank you. So that was, kind of makes you feel good on a uh, different plane of existence. Mm -hmm. A very deep meaning. For those that do want to come visit the museum and learn some history, where can they go to find out some more about you? Well, you can come to our uh, website, which is uh, www.45thdivisionmuseum.com. You can uh, visit us on uh, on Facebook, which we're constantly updating. Um, you can give us a call. The number here in the uh, 405 area code is uh, 228-5710. Uh, right now, because of COVID, we do have some restrictions, uh, groups no larger than 10, uh, and we are encouraging uh, the use of masks, but it's not mandatory. And uh, But we are enforcing the six-foot rule. If you come in here, as we hope most people will, to learn some history and experience the museum and, and come away with a better appreciation uh, for the sacrifices of your fellow citizens uh, over the decades to preserve our liberties, um, you will not come away feeling as if you were followed by somebody. But if you come in here, I don't want to say expecting, because if you come in here expecting to encounter something paranormal, you definitely will not. But if you come in with an open mind and you're just observant, there's a high likelihood. Um, we had a uh, an exhibit here one time on the uh, the uh, on Jack Montgomery, who was one of the division's Medal of Honor recipients in World War II, and a young gentleman of my acquaintance was standing in the gallery looking at all of Jack's medals arrayed in this case, and he said, "Now, as he was explaining this to me, he was he was pale, he was perspiring, and his eyes were watering." And he was never someone to believe in anything paranormal. This was something it wouldn't even cross his mind. But he said he was standing there looking at these things, and he said, 
suddenly it felt like somebody came up behind him and wrapped their arms around him, ice-cold arms and hands. He could feel the individual fingers. And they hugged him tightly, and then the arms and fingers just melted into his chest and were gone. And he came to my office, and he told me this experience, and he said, Mike, I love you like a brother, but I'm never coming in this building again, and he hasn't. And he was just a guy came in to see an exhibit. Hmm. Wow. Well, if there is anyone here, we certainly do appreciate your service. With our interview over, Michael showed us around the museum, pointing out the locations mentioned in his stories. With the professor pressed for time, we didn't linger for long and returned to our cars. The professor opened up his trunk and showed me an intricately decorated wood box about the size of a basketball. He explained to me that he got this as a gift on Halloween. He said he believes it's some sort of puzzle, but he hasn't figured out how to open it yet. I offered him my help, which he declined at the moment, but he said he may take me up on it. I asked him if he wanted to do one more episode before he gets sucked into all of his end-of-the-year business and that he would get back to me later on the subject. So, stay tuned for our season finale, listeners. Tales Unveiled is a production of the Show Starts Now Studios and is produced by Dennis Spielman. The voice of Sam Saxton is Dennis Spielman. The voice of Professor Jeff DeRoot is Jeff Provine. We would like to thank Michael Gonzalez for taking the time to share his stories with us about the museum. The opinions and stories told are that of the individuals and do not reflect of their employer, affiliates, and spirits mentioned. If you love what we're doing, please join us on Patreon and get exclusive rewards. Visit talesunveiled.com to find out how to become a Patreon supporter. This week's advice comes from Colin Powell. If you're going to achieve excellence in big things, you develop that habit in little matters. (laughs) 